Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Eric Smith. Eric is a professor of rhetoric at your college in Pennsylvania, and he's got a book out, Critique of Anti-Racism and Rhetoric and Composition. And he's also involved with Free Black Thought. Um, you can check out their website or their account on Twitter. Hey Eric, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've seen, like I've been following you for a little bit, and I saw your two interviews with uh, Benjamin Boyce. Now, unfortunately, yeah. I haven't had a chance to read your book. Um, I, I spent far too much time reading the, the, the CRT and the anti-racism stuff, but I haven't gotten around to much of the other side of it. Um, but yeah, I wanted to maybe talk to you about that and like talk to you about uh, you know, like how you, like why you thought you needed to do that and like where it came from and also maybe some of the stuff Free Black Thought is doing, if we can get to that. Um, okay. Well, how I got into this, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it was always building, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it was building since I was a, you know, a kid, really. And um, I realized uh, at a young age that um, I kind of didn't belong anywhere, right? I was, uh, I was uh, raised initially, first uh, 13, 14 years of my life in a predominantly white environment. And, um, you know, that had its problems, as you imagine. Um, you know, so um, when I graduated eighth grade and had the chance to go to a high school that was much more diverse, where other black people were, you know, I, I was giddy with anticipation. I couldn't wait. I was finally going to be with my people and deal with this crap. Well, I got there and um, I was rejected by them because I was apparently too white, right? In a lot of ways, they were crueler. So that said to me, okay, this is this whole race thing is a load of crap. Why is this the way it is? So that planted the seed for me to uh, dive into these things. Um, that being said, you know, I, I realized uh, later on, like after I got my PhD and things like that, that I didn't want to do African American studies. Um, Specifically, I mean, I, I never really wanted to do it specifically. I just wanted to, you know, I'm a rhetorical theorist. I like rhetoric. I don't really, you know, um, abide by a particular culture's rhetoric, um, not initially anyway. Uh, so I kind of stepped away from it, but it pulled me back in, to quote Michael Corleone, um, because um, in 2019, there was a keynote address at a uh, flagship conference in my field, the co um, co Conference of College Composition and Communication. This keynote address basically said that not only was um, expecting students of color to write in um, a dialect deemed standard, not only was that racist, but it was also cruel and did them harm. Um, lines like, um, you know, Black students are quote unquote suffocated by whiteness came out in that talk. Now I, I admire the person who gave the talk. I'm not um, coming down on him personally, although people think I am for some odd reason. Um, but I had an issue with um, his conclusions. So I made that known on a um, listserv for rhetoric scholars and um, it did not go well. It, it, it went so badly that I was reminded of Harold Garfinkel's um, definition of a status degradation ceremony. Um, 
than what that is. I mean, I'll put it this way. Several years ago, we, you know, we had, uh, you know, people got tarred and feathered. They're, you know, um, putting pillories or something like that. Now we have social media mobbing, right? Um, we have cancellation and, and, and things like that, but it's, it's a version of that. And um, that was happening to me because I dared uh, say, is this the best way to go, right? Um, I, I dared question that. And uh, the attacks, the multiracial attacks, you know, from black people, uh, white people, Latinx, you know, um, that made me realize what was going on. And it made me uh, pivot as a scholar a little bit towards, um, you know, anti-racism and wokeness, right? I won't even say CRT um, because there's a, there are a lot of good things in CRT. Um, there are some things that definitely fuel the contemporary fire of uh, wokeness in CRT. But there are also some you know, pretty, you know, um, innocuous, if not, you know, brilliant concepts that have been twisted. And we can talk about that um, a little bit later on. But um, I, I decided to start studying that. And um, I, I, I decided to revamp a book I was already working on. Um, that had to do with dialect and, and writing and things like that to a degree, but not, it wasn't an all-out critique of contemporary anti-racism in the field. It became that. Um, so I pivoted um, in the middle of writing that book. Um, I'm glad the publisher was, was um, flexible about that, but I, I wouldn't recommend totally changing the direction of a book with three months go, three months <laughs> Headline. I would not recommend that. Um, it is psychologically taxing. <laughs> it's taxing. Um, relationships uh, failed <laughs> because of it. Um, but I did get the book out, and that is a critique of anti-racism and rhetoric and composition, the semblance of empowerment. So that's why I'm here. Hey, cool. Great. Um, a couple of things are just okay. Rhetoric now. A lot of time when it's used in common parlance, it's almost like used in derision. Oh, that's just a bunch of rhetoric. And it's that. Right. So what exactly is it? Um, the simplest definition uh, comes from Aristotle. And uh, that is, you know, rhetoric is the ability in any given situation to discern the available means of persuasion. Um, what that means is that in one situation, um, there are certain uh, metaphors and references that you can use to be as persuasive as possible. And in other situations, there are different ones. You know, you can't use the same ones. You may actually alienate your audience if you use the same ones. So one size does not fit all when it comes to persuasion. So noticing that and noticing some of the tactics of language that you can use to identify with your audience and be as persuasive as possible, um, rhetoric is a study of that, right? Um, it's, it's used in derogatory terms, um, mainly because of Plato. Um, he uh, wrote several dialogues um, starring the great Socrates. Um, two of them that are most relevant to rhetoric are the uh, Gorgias and the Phaedrus. Um, and in the Gorgias, um, rhetoric is seen as a tool for, um, you know, dastardly men to trick people and, and gain power 
in um, you know ignoble ways, right? Um, and Socrates was complaining and warning about that. Um, Plato would you know change his tune a little bit um, later on in his career with the Phaedrus, in, in which he said, you know, we we need to be dedicated to the truth, but we also need to realize that different people um, are um, ready to handle some things and not others. We have to meet people where they are, right? And in doing that, uh, we have to be rhetorical, right? Um, there's, I'm paraphrasing here, but Plato had Socrates say, we have to look into the soul of the person we're talking to, the people we're talking to, in order to uh, figure out how to best um, convey the truth to them. So um, the, um, the derogatory uh, take on rhetoric originates with um, with uh, Plato's Gorgias, but you know that was it was giving it a bad rap in my opinion. You know, I just like I said because it's because you hear it a lot, and I mean, I I use it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I am using it wrongly, right? Too, so I just wanted to get that cleared up. Um, but when you mentioned whiteness, and this was something because it came up again yesterday um, with the shooter in Boulder. And I mean, something about it struck me yesterday. Now, if, if I understand this correctly, coming from like, you know, the Kennedy camp, let's just say, uh, all the racial categories, and I'm not denying this, you know, like it was made up by a white men and it was used to subjugate people and it was excuse so, so why they can get away with it as justification, all that, like I'm not. But then, okay, this is always the pre-days Kennedy, but then when they say, okay, well, these were created by white people and this is the society they created, so we're gonna embrace that identity. Fine, embrace it, do whatever I think it would be better just to say, forget it, we don't want it, but whatever, that's... But now I'm seeing where they say, okay, well, especially like after the George Floyd uh, killing, you had a lot of this stuff coming out where, you know, objectivity is whiteness and things like that. And then yesterday, you know, first, when you hear about the shooting in Boulder, you see the, the picture of the guy being taken away. Yes, he looks visibly white. And it's like, oh, another white man being, you know, led away, not being killed by the police. And then yesterday, there was a whole debate of whether or not Syrians are white. Now, if these categories were created by white people and used to subjugate everyone else, and these were, you know, it's a form of colonialization, you're putting these identities on people, all this. Aren't the anti-racists now doing the same thing by saying, okay, well, Syrians are white. You know, if like that, the term politically black, um, you know, just horrible things like uh, Asians are white adjacent or they've taken on whiteness, you know, arguing whether Jews are white. And then you had this thing of Jews of color, but if Syrians are white, then are Jews from the Levant white or are they Jews of color? Like, like how does that work? Like, I mean, aren't they just exactly doing the same thing? They're, taking that idea of whiteness and they're putting it on people. Um, yeah, they are doing the same thing. You were right to be confused um, because they're being confusing. And uh, the, um, I, the main reason that I can discern, and I don't think I'm the only one discerning it in this way, is uh, that it's, it's all about power and it's all about uh, oppressor and oppressed in a particular context, right? Um, so, Asians are white adjacent when it suits anti-racist and they're people of color when it suits uh, anti-racist. Um, the point is to always have the oppressor oppressed dichotomy in any kind of situation, 
right? So, and, and you manipulate the uh, facts or the uh, empirical material, right, uh, for those purposes. Um, when people say stuff like um, politically black or multiracially white, right, um, it's to combat a particular situation. Um, say a black person is embracing um, things that are considered white, like objectivity and reason and delayed gratification and, and, um, and punctuality and things like that. And they're defending those things. And then the anti-racist can't say, oh, well, you're black and you're saying that, so I must be wrong. They have to spin it somehow. And they spin it with this idea of white adjacency, uh, multiracial whiteness, things like that. Um, one can see from all this that obviously white whiteness is considered an ideology, right? That um, overlaps substantially with other ideologies that serve as the foundation of Western civilization and especially the United States, that foundation can be called classical liberalism, right? Um, you know, um, a respect for um, the primacy of reason, right? Um, uh, objectivity, individuality, free speech, um, freedom and equality, um, the, the, um, the right to not be judged as a member of a group, but as an individual. All these things are uh, kind of under attack um, by uh, anti-racists, the same way Marxists would attack uh, such ideas, right? Um, so that's why a lot of people see this as a, you know, a, an offshoot of cultural Marxism. But all this comes down to, you know, um, oppressor and oppressed and critiquing classical liberalism. And, um, you know, critical race theory is not silent about its distrust of liberalism, right? Um, it's one of the foundations of critical race theory. So if you take that into consideration, then whenever a person of color is exemplifying or championing um, anything remotely classically liberal, that person has to be shunned. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, that's again, you mentioned the neo, uh, like the neo-Marxism stuff, but okay, they're all just dogmas, but I still think this has more of a religious aspect to it than, than it does like Marxism, like the, the shunning thing. Okay. The Amish shun you. Yeah, you know, if you take the Abrahamic faiths, it started with Judaism. You know, he that leads you to, you know, God, follow gods other than the gods of your fathers, even if he's your brother, kill him. Right? And Muslims aren't exactly happy with apostates either. So it's you get that, like it's there. You're oh, you're supposed to be on my side, but you're not. I get that from it, like the the religious aspect. But just because you you'd mentioned it and you, you talked about it earlier, like about CRT. Now, I, I, like I said, I started reading a lot of this stuff, and I, I basically started with Bell's paper. Well, I started with White Fragility, then I, just, I was like, this makes no sense. Where does it come from? And then I went back. So I started with, I got this book that said the 25 papers that launched the movement, right? And the first paper in it was Bell's paper from 75, uh, Serving Two Masters. Oh, yeah. Okay, now... That back then was that still critical legal scholarship or like because I know like the term critical race theory didn't come around until about the late eighties early nineties yeah. something like that right so that's, critical legal studies yes yeah. that time yeah so I mean okay when I'm reading some of Bell stuff like I disagree with Bell on quite a lot I just don't you know but it's well reasoned and it's well argumented 
Uh-huh. You know, I, I could completely disagree with what he says. Um, but it, like you said, he brings up some really good points and it just twists them and goes way off the deep end. And if we could stick with those little kernels, like one I keep bringing up from that paper was when he talked about the desegregation of schools. Yeah. And he said, education should have been desegregated, not schools. And that makes a lot of sense. Like, don't bus kids for an hour or two hours. Fix the goddamn school they're in. You know, that they're in. Right. You know, busing maybe is a short-term sh- you know, stopgap or something. Um, but yeah, like I, so I'm trying to make, trying to see where that, dis- like where it went from the legal scholarship to critical race theory. Um, well, if you want a date or as close enough to a, a specific date as possible, um, 1989, 1990, 1991, um, that's when um, Kimberly Crenshaw, one of um, Bell's students, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, um, got into the game and, you know, started um, adding terms to uh, Bell's take on critical legal studies and and, and things like that. The term she's most famous for is intersectionality. And um, what that means is that, you know, and it's, it's, it's a reasonable concept, right? Um, a person isn't just one thing, it's just one demographic. That person is an intersection of various demographics. And um, in the court of law, we would do well to see somebody as an intersection of things and not just one thing, right? Um, you know, um, if, if there's a case about, um, you know, spousal abuse or something like that, that person isn't just a battered woman. She's a battered black woman of a certain class. And those things come into play as well. Right. Um, a black man um, who does the same crime as a black woman um, has different reasons, uh, different motivations. It's a different situation because he's a black man and not a black woman. Um, so this idea of intersectionality was there just to, to, to have a, a um, more specific analysis of people. That um, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I think it's um, common sense, but obviously for, for reasons we can talk about later on, it's been twisted into, into something else. Um, around that time, CRT, starts to emerge as its own thing. And other people get into it as well. Richard Delgado, uh, Mari Matsuda. Uh, these are some of the main names I know. Gene Stefancic, um, and obviously Derek Bell is still there and, and maintains his status as the um, um, you know forefather, I guess, of critical race theory. That's when it really starts to take off in academia anyway. And it moves beyond legal studies. Right, it, it gets into other aspects of the humanity as well. Um, so um, yes, in the 70s, uh, it was still an offshoot of critical legal studies. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, it became its own thing, critical race theory, and it just uh, grew or morphed or devolved <laughs> into um, what it seems to be today. Uh, when you mentioned Bell, because uh, sorry, not Bell, uh, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, like, I read I've seen a lot of her talks. The only things I've really read by her, aside from like, you know, opinion pieces and in, in journals and things where uh, her paper from 1989, the name escapes me. And then mapping the margins in 91. Margins. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay. I like the idea of intersectionality that makes sense. And it's, it's a useful tool. It's help, you know, helpful for analysis or like you said, in, you know, legal cases, this and that, but I mean, when she, 
like after she finished mapping the margins near the end of it, when she like, you know, you have to have an identity based politics and, and this and that, like, you know, get rid of the, the, the liberal ethic. Uh, I mean, she didn't really map them. She gerrymandered them because <laughs> no, but you had weird things happening after that. I mean, like you had it in Canada um, and you've had it, you've had this in the UK as well, where, I think one of the, like, I don't want to get into the grooming gangs in the UK, but one of the most egregious cases I read about was in Germany. It was a Moroccan woman who was seeking a divorce from her husband. And he was also Moroccan. They were both Muslim and he was beating her. And the judge said, well, you know, that's just part of your culture. So they're looking at like a weird intersection. Okay. That's Muslim. That's your culture. That's, that's what you do. We have to be culturally sensitive. And this was in 2014 or 15. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so, like the, it had some really bad effects because uh, there's a good friend of mine, um, uh, Yasmin Mohammed, and she, I mean, in her memoir that came out last year, you know, she went to the police, like a teacher from her high school took her to Child Protective Services and because her parents were brown and she was brown, well, sorry, that's just a cultural thing that they're beating you. You know, wow. so, I mean, it's, it, it, things like that have happened, you know, where they're, so that intersectionality, like, it, yeah, it's a very useful tool. Like that one case, I think she, I can't remember if it was Ford or GM, the car dealers, you know, like, the car, you know, like they had black men working in the warehouse. They had white women working out front, but they had no black women. And, you know, like, like okay, that's really, okay, that's, it's, call it bias, call it whatever. Maybe it was intentional, but it was a good way to look at that. But what's happening with the court cases and what's happening with, oh, you're from another country, so we have to treat you differently. It's said it, it's completely morphed it just it went off the rails yeah um and and that's an aspect of it that i i guess i don't talk about enough you know um the fact that uh people are taking intersectionality and, 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 and using it in ways that are detrimental to the people trying to help um i i um and you make good points when i look at the downside of intersectionality i look at it from the woke perspective and intersectionality goes from a mode of analysis uh, to an ethos right um it becomes a uh, creator of credibility the more um oppressed intersections you have the more respect you get in certain circles um the more you're allowed to speak uh, the more your opinion and lived experience matters. Um, forget about subjectivity. You know, um, if you have enough oppressed intersections, your your word is objective. Um, and if you have oppressor intersections, white, male, um, middle, upper middle class, uh, things like that, um, you are considered less credible. Right, you're uh, you're looked at with suspicion. Um, there are tenets of racism derived from you know the work of people like um, um, D'Angelo uh, that say that you know anything that makes white people comfortable needs to be suspect. You know we need to look at it you know and see where you know the racism is happening. Another tenet, probably the most famous one uh, as far as my research has shown me is uh, the question, it's not whether racism happened or not, it's how it manifested in that situation. So if somebody interprets something as 
racist, you're not allowed to ask why. It's definitely racist. We just have to figure out how it manifested in this particular situation, which is another um, uh, twisted version of a concept um, in critical race theory. Mari Matsuda, you know, um, also talking about intersectionality and things like that. She said, you know, when we see an issue that looks like sexism, you know, um, try to figure out where the racism is too, right? When you see something that looks racist, try to figure out where the sexism is or, you know, any other kind of form of oppression because intersectionality is a thing. It didn't say definitely find it, right? It said, look for it. It might be there. That's been twisted into it's there, right? Um, it's there um, because a person with the right intersections is saying it's there. So it can't be questioned. That's, uh, that's why I separate CRT from what many people call wokeness. You know, um, there's, a, there's substantial overlap, yes. Um, but there are also some things that uh, don't necessarily come out of CRT directly. Okay. I feel like when I answer these questions, I start rambling. So if I'm... No, no that's fine. Go ahead, please. I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, okay. I just want to like, because you started talking about your book. I want to try to kind of tie this in with your book because some of these things you mentioned, like objectivity and, you know, punctuality and things like that. But you know, another one I saw was the respect of the written word or love of the written word. Yeah. Um, now, in your book, like, you know, critique of anti-racism and rhetoric and composition, I mean, and you, you, I think you, you mentioned you swung halfway through it or near the end of it, but why are they trying to, you know, forget about the, like how it's ahistoric anyways, all these things you're talking about. Cause like I said, you know, I'm pretty sure the Egyptians were objective when they were building the pyramids. They needed some of that, you know, <laughs> um, but like, why are they purposely trying to deny the tools that would help, you know, you know, underprivileged communities like black neighborhoods, brown neighborhoods, like white neighborhoods in Appalachia, like these people need these things, you know? Yeah. Like, um, well, I mean, I have my speculations. Yeah. Um, one is that, you know, um, their ideas would fall apart under the least bit of scrutiny, you know? So if we can demonize reason and rationality, we can protect ourselves from that, right? Um, but there's also this idea that if something uh, comes out of Eurocentric or Anglocentric uh, origins, then it's suspect, right? Um, there are people who, you know, refuse to dialogue with people who disagree with them, especially um, people who enjoy hegemonic status who disagree with them, uh, typically white males. Um, they see that as in inherent trick, right? Um, you're going to use reason and rationality to maintain the status quo. You're not gonna to try to understand me. You know, you're not gonna to try to um, collaborate with me to uh, arrive at a truth. You're doing this to manipulate me into um, uh, giving up my stance and maintaining the status quo. Reason, dialogue, those things are Trojan horses for white supremacy, right? Um, I, I often bring up Wayne Booth, um, who was a prominent was a prominent rhetorician, and in a book he wrote called "The Rhetoric of Rhetoric," 
um, he coined this term um, listening rhetoric. And basically what that is, is, you know, doing your best to empathize with the other person, to put yourself in his or her shoes, to try to understand why that person thinks what that person thinks. And that person does the same to you. Um, there's a distrust of that um, in, in uh, the woke circles. And Booth kind of predicted that. He, he said there are variations of listening rhetoric. And one of the variations was, you know, somebody listening just to find the weaknesses in your argument so that he can manipulate them, right? He's not really trying to understand. He's trying to uh, find where he can, you know, um, find the weaknesses in your armor. And um, that version of listening rhetoric is what the woke see as always happening uh, from hegemonic sources, uh, white males or, or, or um, white adjacent uh, people. Uh, and, 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 and that's the case. So reason, the scientific method, individuality, all these things are, are insidious and, and tacit tools of whiteness and can't be trusted. Yeah, but, okay, they're <laughs> not though. I mean, like... Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, no, I keep pointing this one thing out because I, I mean, I read this last year. Someone had sent it to me. And I want to read this guy's writings. I really do. And it was an Ethiopian man named Jakob who fell, like said something against Christianity or Catholicism. The king had just converted and he had to run away. And this was something like a hundred years before Hume and Locke and, and Kant. So he went and hid in a cave in Ethiopia. He'd learned a local form of rhetoric and he'd been trained by Jesuits. And they found his writings and his writings were very similar to those of Hume and Locke and Kant, but they were a hundred years before. You know, I, I'd love to read this guy's writings. I'd love to see what he has to say. I mean, all I know is that he existed and that these writings are out there, but just that in itself, I mean, you know, India has uh, a Stoic tradition going back about 2,000 years, and that was with trade from the Greeks. You know, and there was a lot of mixing back and forth, things like that. I mean, so, like, how do they account for that? Like, I, like, you know, do they just use cultural appropriation? Oh, the whites took it and used <laughs> like... Um, well, they don't really address that, that I've seen. Anyway, um, you know, the, you can... There are East Asian philosophies that align, you know, um, nicely with, uh, uh, you know, classical liberal values. Well, I mean, you can you can go all over the place. Um, the fact that, you know, um, Europeans felt this way as they were colonizing is the most salient point for them, right? And as long as that's the case, as long as it's associated with the colonizer, it's suspect. This is all about tearing down, um, uh, you know, any kind of uh, Eurocentric uh, power, right? It's about tearing that down. And when that's all you want, all you want is to tear things down. Um, it's less about, well, reason and rationality and making sense and more about doing whatever you can in a particular situation to uh, decenter whiteness um, and um, I don't know, weaken it to the best of your ability. You want to tear down the, the white Western ways of thinking because white Western people impose this on everyone else, but they didn't. I mean, it's, 
okay, I, again, I look at this at the harm that it's going to do to developing nations and like what it's doing to places like the Middle East. Uh, I mean, even before you had Edward Said's post-colonialism, you had stuff, you know, you had Hassan al-Banna starting with the Muslim Brotherhood and Said Qutub putting identity politics along to it, like pan-Arabism Arabism and all that. But the post-colonialism, um, even now, it's when you mention enlightenment values or you mention these things, they're looked upon, like secularism has a really bad connotation in the Middle East because it was associated with, and you know, rightfully so, installed dictators, oh, they're secular, whatever, right? But mm-hmm. So it has a very bad connotation. Right. But the post-colonialism is, actually stops them from even thinking about things like this. Uh, I have a friend of mine, he started this thing called Ideas Beyond Borders, where they translate books on science and uh philosophy and they did some kids books they translate them to arabic farsi and kurdish and they make them available for free in the middle east they're available online and i mean when they put out the first call uh i think faisal told me in the first day they had fifteen thousand people volunteer to translate and this is in places like iraq where reading these books is illegal it's some of these places it's death for these kids and they're all young. They're all like in their you know, early twenties. They're 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 young people doing this, and they're looking for this stuff. But you have the the theocrats. You have you know, people in politics, whatever. Oh, this is a white Western way of doing it. They're pushing it as white Western. These guys are doing the same thing. I mean, you're harming them. Um, I mean, another thing I look at is Africa. So aside from North Africa, like a map that I'd seen with the COVID vaccine. Thing, all of sub-Saharan Africa was, we're taking the Chinese vaccine. China is spending so much money down there. 2016, University of Cape Town had a conference that said science must fall. Uh, I'm aware of it. Yeah, okay. So last year, they put out a thing about you know, black physics in South Africa. You want to go get black teachers. You want to get, okay, you want to get Neil deGrasse Tyson to teach an astrophysics course? Go ahead. More power to you. But there's no such thing as black physics. China is buying them out wholesale and then giving them roads and whatever. We're sending over a toxic ideology that it's not helping them. Um, you were on with Benjamin Boyce. He just had someone on recently. Sorry, I'll shut up after this. Uh, she was an Indian woman and she was talking about, uh, she just had a documentary out called Dysphoria and she was, or Dysphoric. And she's talking about how the gender, you know, gender theory and queer theory and what it's doing with trans rights how that's really harming women in India. Uh-huh. And it's, she's like, we're not even at the point where we can have a safe space. And, you know, you're putting all this where you're getting rid of gender. We can't even fight for our gender rights anymore. So I mean, like we're exporting this for like the West is exporting this. And you have places like China buying things up and the kids in the middle East, th- there's a hunger for this. I mean, when Dawkins, Dawkins book uh, was it uh, I forget his book the the one about religion um, uh, yeah whatever the I, I can't remember but anyways it, it uh, someone illegally put it up in in the Middle East he said it was okay to go it got downloaded I think two million times in the first day or something silly like that there is a hunger for this but we're trying to get rid of it <laughs> and yeah. we're hurting people we're actually hurting people uh, yeah. I... I know. Uh, sometimes I was talking to somebody yesterday and, you know, he was like, is this some kind of conspiracy to, 
you know, to, to weaken people so that they're easier to control. They have, you know, knowledge is power, so take away knowledge, right? Demonize knowledge, right? Uh, demonize uh, um, epistemology, methodologies, right? Um, that can help people seek truth or at least the, um, um, you know, the most pragmatic truth for a particular situation, right? Um, if you can do that, then you can weaken people and, and um, uh, control them easier. And I was like, you know something? I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I totally thought that. <laughs> and and um, it's the kind of thing I don't say out loud very much because, you know, it, it, it is speculation. But if you look at things and you take uh, what um, contemporary anti-racism is doing to its logical conclusion, it's going to hurt more than it's going to help. Right. Uh, as you just pointed out. So I don't I don't know uh, why this is happening, why this is working. I know I, I have some speculations, but okay. Instead of just being a little negative, like I said, you were involved with free black thought and I want to get in a little of that, but I mean, just because she's been on Twitter lately a lot, this, this young kid, I think he's like 21 and he said, I've just started up a school. You know, like there's someone trying to do something. Yeah. Uh, I might not go, who knows what's going to come of it, but so like being involved with free black thought, like, is that what you're kind of looking for? Or is it just opening up to, you know, there's not one black thought, there's everything, or are you just trying to like find examples of people doing, you know, good initiatives like that? Like I'm trying to wonder what your, the whole, the whole idea behind free black thought was. The answer is yes to both of those. Um, okay. But um, mostly we want to let people know that there's, there's stuff, out, there's stuff out there from um, you know uh, black people that does not align with uh, Kendi and D'Angelo and Ta-Nehisi Coates and 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 various people in my field who say things like there's you know um, you know a black way of doing things and a white way of doing things right. Um, I've been accused of abiding by white ways of knowing, therefore I'm not a real black person, right? White ways of knowing. Means uh, a black way of knowing, and, and when I ask, "Well, what's the black way?" they can never answer my question, right? Um, there's a there's a term in my field called whitely, you know, it's a it's a it's a rhetoric in which um, you know people uh, see themselves as virtuous, as good, and things like that, and they're arrogant about it to the point where you know they can do no wrong and things like that. Um, and I won't get I, I have a part about this in the book that I won't mm -hmm. get into right now. But I thought two things. Uh, one, um, I know a lot of black people like that, you know, like a lot, you know, and, and they're not they're not multiracially white. They're the kind of people that they would say, OK, that's a real black person. You know, they would say that. Um, secondly, I asked, OK, well, that's whitely. Can you tell me what blackly is? They can never answer that question. Never. Um, so. You know, uh, we're, we're trying to let people know that there are other viewpoints out there. And those viewpoints may not agree with each other. The point is, there are other viewpoints out there. And we're trying to um, uh, inform people of that. Yeah, okay, but that's, again, like, in 2021 now, I guess, that we have to say that, you know, Black people in America have multiple viewpoints. Or even to say that white people in America have multiple viewpoints because now it's you know it's all whiteness or white ways of knowing. Like it's, 
okay, I we went backwards. I, I the way I looked at the, the the timeline of this, I keep thinking to myself, it's around the mid to late nineties. We're from academia and policy. The shift went from, you know, a liberal ethic to identity based politics. And that's where I see that shift happening. And that's, you know, we need to get back to that or try to get back to that ethic because I'm sorry, like I keep saying it, you're, you're a majority white country and you want to pe get people to focus on their racial identity and, you know, make an identity based on that, make politics based on that. And you're scratching your head why something like Charlottesville happens. Like, I'm sorry, but it's going to keep happening. Right, right. It's a powder cake. Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I feel your pain, my friend. I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's odd. We have to talk about these things in 2021, but we have to talk about these things in 2021. Um, the, uh, George, I mean, this has been happening for years. Um, uh, one of the, um, biggest catalysts of it is the, um, you know, the election of, uh, Donald Trump. And then you have George Floyd's killing. Uh, which really opened the floodgates. But, you know, these things were starting to happen before that. I mean, they're starting to happen decades ago, really. Um, but it started to really pick up steam even before uh, Donald Trump. It started to pick up steam during Obama. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, and that's interesting, right? And, I mean, we can have some speculations about that. I have mine. Uh, so um, that's why in the book I talk about... Um, a primacy of identity and and um, you know prefiguration, all these things that um, I use to label a a semblance of empowerment and not real empowerment that predates critical race theory, right? Um, that's an antecedent to uh, the consequence of of critical race theory. So right, and I mean this is this is my um, uh, speculation um, regarding you know. Uh, where this is coming from and why it's so strong, exacerbated by Trump yeah. and, and um, you know, things being called on tape, right? And ultimately George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I mean, when I look at the timeline of this, again, I, I mean, look at the media side of it. It was 9-11. After 9-11, you had, okay, it was patriotic. You know, Bill Maher got his show canceled because he was unpatriotic. Do you remember all that? which is kind of silly, but patriotism was good for a little bit. But let's say within six months to a year after 9-11, patriotism was started to be made racist. Oh, America's racist because of patriotism. Like you, like you had the Islamophobia thing happening. And okay, the Tea Party didn't help at all. Like, like you know, like yeah, there's right. there, there, there there there, there, yeah, yeah. There plenty of crap. Like I'm, I'm not trying to just take away from that. Okay. Then when Obama gets in, that's like, I think it was Zach Goldberg who did that study. Like you start seeing the racism talk rise in his first, in his right. first term. By the time his second term comes along, going to Trump, it just zooms up. Mm -hmm. Now it's, you know, A, there's racism out there. I'm not, you know, like you don't have to, I should, shouldn't have to say like, yo, I'm not denying it or anything like that, but it's putting that focus on it. And getting everyone to look at it. I mean, and the, the, the silly articles too, like, you know, running is racist and, um, you know, is bicycling racist is whatever. And then the silly articles that were really bad. This one was in 2019. It was 
two black uh, two South Asian guys or teens beat up four black teens, and it was like you know, it was two boys and four girls, and one of the boys pissed on the girls, and this happened at a I don't know if it was in New Jersey high school or they were on a field trip to New York City or something. Op-ed piece in the New York Times was, oh, this is whiteness. They've they've taken on whiteness. I'm like, okay, just take that away for a second. But you're not letting the kids deal with what they did. You know, like, they have to be kind of held accountable. They have to be kind of, they're not going to learn from what they did. They're not going to learn why they did it wrong. Again, you're giving them that excuse. You're giving them that crutch. Like, whiteness made me do it. Like, the devil made me do it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, like that's kind of what I see as a timeline of how this came out in the press. But yeah, there's, I don't know. Um, like again, I knew, I don't want to like, I don't want to lose the academy. But the way I'm looking at it right now, it's, I mean, it, it needs to change something fierce. It's 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 so siloed off. The you know, physics departments are going to listen to gender scholars because they're misogynistic. So they have to have more women. They're going to listen to race scholars, but. There's no, if a physicist tried to question the methodology or what was going on, I mean, would he still have a job? Probably not these days, you know, and, and, and everything is attributed to race and racism and things like that. I, some, there's, oh man, I forget what uh, European country did a study, about, you know, the uh, gender disparity in the sciences. And they concluded that, you know, um, it's not that, women are being barred from the sciences, they want to do other things. <laughs> that, yeah, that was the Scandinavian countries. They've had those a couple of times. I, okay, I just spoke with, um, she's a friend of mine. She, uh, she's, she was born in Saudi, raised in Saudi, you know, in a strict Muslim household. She's now in the States. She's a chemical engineer. And, you know, she talked about this. So in the Middle East or in very oppressive countries like that, and, you know, Saudi is a very misogynistic country. Women don't have a lot of options. So you have, you know, the again, you see it from, you know, the, the anti-racist. Oh, look at Saudi Arabia. They've got 50% of the women going to STEM. It's so advanced. It's so progressive. It's like, no, they have no other choice. Like for her, it was do well in school, get accepted to a college in the United States and get my freedom. That was for her. It was an escape. But the more free and open a society is, people are allowed to choose what they want to do. They don't need to, you know, especially for women, like, you know, it's all about choice, isn't it? And if they want to stay home, be a, a mother and a homemaker, go ahead. If they want to be a teacher, they want to be whatever. But it's it's now it's like, okay, well, it's, it sounds, you know, in some ways like China or, or Soviet Union. Well, this person's good at math, so send them into math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's 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 getting ridiculous. Um, look, I don't want to keep you too too much longer because I know you got to teach. But if you've got any last thoughts on how to, you know, push back against this or like any kind of messages of you know hope, <laughs> um, hope no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, we have to start speaking up more. You know, people who can speak up. You know, people who um, don't have uh, precarious. Uh, job situations, right? Um, say, I don't know, professors of color with tenure, you know, um, they have to start uh, speaking out more and, um, and, and trying to get the word out there to the best of their ability and as often as possible. 
Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's what we have to do. So if there's anything remotely close to hope that I have is that, you know, that starts to happen more. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. Okay. Again, just get away from this, like, okay, this is black thought or this is white thought. Or just, you know, I, I, I agree with uh, like the Thomas Chatterton Williams and the Camille Foster thing. Like, let's just stop talking about race. We, you know, yeah. there's, there's practical solutions and let's get to those and let's leave the race craft out of it for now. Anyways, yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on and talking to me. It was great. And uh, yeah, thank everyone for listening. Thank you.